Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Mara Benjamin, professor of Jewish studies at Mount Holyoke College and winner of the AAR Book Award in Constructive Reflective Studies. She's here to speak to us about her book, The Obligated Self, Maternal Subjectivity, and Jewish Thought, published with Indiana University Press. Congratulations, Mara, and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the podcast. This is a really interesting topic, and you took a very innovative approach. I was hoping you could begin by telling us a little bit about how the project uh, emerged for you and what were some of the broader conceptual interventions you were hoping to make with the book. Sure. Um, Well, I would trace the origin of the book in two different um, ways. One is on a sort of scholarly level, um, my field is, I guess my subfield is modern Jewish thought. Um, And it's one that's really been dominated by intellectual history and philosophy, often somewhat removed from social history, cultural analysis, um, theory. And so, you know, there's been a kind of tradition in my subfield of going deep with one or maybe a couple thinkers, which could be theologians or philosophers or, or whatever, um, and really kind of focusing in on, on their writings. It's very textual. And that's actually what my first book did. Um, my first book was on one such thinker, a German Jewish um, philosopher named Franz Rosenzweig, who lived in interwar Germany. Um, and by the time I was done with that book, I was frustrated with that approach that was so often exhibited in my subfield of, of not really being able to take topics or big picture issues and just examine them on their own um, with reference to how they have been treated, but not necessarily foregrounding the particular thinker as like the, the focus. Um, and it, um, it took some time for me to embrace the, uh, the different voice that I use in this, that I think is not a typical academic voice. It took some time for me to embrace a different structure, uh, which maybe we'll talk about for, for organizing the book. Um, but, but once I really grappled with the fact that I was not excited to do another book like my first book or that was more conventional, I was, I think, in some sense liberated to <laughs> to do something where um, I used those thinkers that are often discussed in my subfield, but was not really focused on unpacking them. Um, so that's on the scholarly side. Um, kind of where I was at in my professional life. And then as I'm upfront about in the book, there's also, of course, a a personal component to this as there is for most people writing um, who take up, you know, a topic like maternal subjectivity. Um, There's, there's some somewhere that they stand in relation to that topic. And um, I was with a small child who was about, I think at the time. And then I had a a newborn 
And it started to um, occur to me that, that perhaps this experience, which is so common, child raising and child rearing, um, was something that actually could be not just like this thing that happened on the side of my intellectual life, but could be brought into it in a certain way. And um, if we want to move on to the broader conceptual interventions that you asked about. So Jewish thinkers in Central Europe, Western Europe, in the course of like the late 18th century to let's say the mid 20th century um, were uh, the, are the people that I spent a lot of my graduate school years reading about and following the story of what it was, um, how they interpreted the experience of modernity that was, um, that they were encountering, that was being uh, foisted upon them in certain ways. Um, how did they make meaning of that? How did they respond to it? And all the ways that, um, that modern historical knowledge, scientific knowledge, et cetera, challenged some of the basic um frameworks that they had inherited. And one of the things that occurred to me um, as, I, as I thought about this trajectory was that there's a really, I would say, crucial concept in traditional Jewish thought to this day, um, which is the concept that you start out in life obligated um, rather than free or at liberty. Um, it's sort of the opposite notion of the story that we tell in um, social contract theory, right? That you start out with a set of obligations that you have to then, you know, discharge or um, constantly engage or whatever. And that that is a source of meaning. It's also how the world works. It's how um, the Jewish story gets told because those obligations are a way of fulfilling God's, you know, teaching. Um, during the modern period, of course, as Jews are being asked to or forced to um, kind of justify their difference in these non-Jewish societies, largely Christian societies or, or sort of secularizing Christian societies, they find it no longer tenable to uphold all of the particular obligations that um, that are part of traditional Jewish life. Of course, some some do, but in Western and Central Europe, there are um, there begins to be a movement to really radically rethink what Jewish piety looks like in light of the demands that are being um, sort of made to Jews, which are basically, you know, become legible to us as Frenchmen, as Germans, as Dutch, you know, as English, or, you know, you're not going to be citizens. And so what happens is that this notion of obligation goes inward. It goes from being something that is performed in public spaces um, within this Jewish framework to something that is actually dangerous to perform in certain ways or, or threatening. And so um, it doesn't disappear, however. It goes inward. And what I mean by that is that we start to see develop in the 19th and early 20th century this notion that actually the true obligation um, or the true site of obligation of performing mitzvot or these commandments is something that happens in intersubjective relation. So 
I encounter you, my neighbor, I am beholden to you, I have certain obligations to you, that's where I actually encounter God, um, is in fulfilling that and in, in beholding you in your subjectivity. So it's actually, um, on some level, a, a beautiful and inspiring understanding of what it means to encounter another human being. At the same time, it's the product of this sort of assault on Jewish um, religious life that is happening, or or I should say at least the transformation. That would be a somewhat more neutral way to put it. So, um, so what happens is we get um, thinkers who might be known outside of Jewish studies, like Martin Buber's notion of the I-thou relation, um, which I encounter all over the place outside of Jewish studies, um, which is, you know, that, that there's something very powerful that happens in this relation between two subjects. Um, for me, just bringing it back to the biographical um, piece of this, um, the experience of intersubjective obligation is nowhere more profound, at least in our moment and in society than in taking care of a young child, a child who is basically dependent, fully dependent. Um, and so that never really is mentioned in these thinkers who are all about intersubjective obligation. Um, it's it, Women aren't there. Babies aren't there. And yet, you know, as I came to know as a human, that was this you know, really profound experience of encounter with an other to whom I was obligated, um, whether I liked it or not. <laughs> so that is, that's kind of a, a, a piece that ties together my own experience and this larger um, scholarly question I was asking about. You really show throughout the book how essential this uh, relational aspect is to uh, modern theological thinking. And you, you break this down throughout the book um, in two parts, really. And, the, and the, the first part of the book is centered on this dyad of the mother and the child. And there's a few themes of uh, not only obligation, but love, power, and then uh, ideas about teaching and learning. Can you talk about what you were hoping to do in the first part of the book um, and how these themes uh started to um, show up for you as through lines throughout your thinking? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, the The four key words that are part of the, that are the first part of the book, as you mentioned, there's obligation, love, power, and teaching. And, um, you know, these are ways that I try to put some meat on the bones of that intersubjective encounter. What's going on there? What are some of the things that um, the guys who lived in my head, Martin Buber and Rosenzweig and so on, what what is it that they missed, but that in theory they should have been able to talk about? Or, and, and it shifted from wow, why didn't they talk about it to, well, what do I want to say about this? And so um, those were those were elements of, first of all, the experience of caring for a young dependent child that I thought were, you know, sort of constitutive, not the only ones, certainly. And I've, I've read um, 
sort of responses to the book that I think are so powerful, where they, you know, add another piece to this, um, you know, another element and, and playing with it. But, you know, so it's not meant to be exhaustive, but but it is trying to take up certain salient um, pieces of what that experience is about, of caregiving, and also ones that happen to kind of light up um, important ideas or uh, practices in Jewish thought in the broadest sense. And for that, for me, that means, you know, anything from biblical sources um, as they are taken up by the rabbis of late antiquity and, and beyond. Right. So, so the idea that you can talk about love, for instance, without simultaneously talking about, uh, sorry, that you could talk about obligation without simultaneously um, grounding that or having that be in dialogue with love would be um, unintelligible to the rabbis, right? We we often think of a you know it, depending on where we're coming from, right? There's the there's the kind of law spirit or um, other kinds of dichotomies that uh, that are often um, have often appeared as kind of caricaturing rabbinic thought as, you know, all bound out with law and there's no love. And, you know, for the rabbis, that would have been, you know, hard to process, right? Because the experience of obligation to the divine is one that is understood as an outgrowth of God's love for the people of Israel and in turn for their experience of gratitude and love to God, right? So so those are topics that are interwoven in Jewish liturgical traditions and other kinds of traditions. Um, and also, I think, are, are interwoven in uh, what many people find to be the experience of, of child rearing. Um, and so those are kind of, that's one of the ways in which I tried to figure out, okay, what were the topics that I wanted to really delve into? It was that kind of sweet, sweet spot where, you know, common experience lines up with things that uh, are salient categories in Jewish thought. Um, in terms of power, uh, one of the pieces that was uh, interesting and uh, frustrating, I guess, was the lack of attention in my sources that I was already dealing with in, in modern Jewish thought to power differentials in the relationship between two individuals. This is something, of course, we're talking about a lot today, and rightly so, and how do we think about power um, in not only individual relationships, but of course, much more broadly. Um, and, you know, the, the relationship of power with a child is is really complicated. It's It's not so simple. And yet the fact that it's not, you know, kind of unidirectional doesn't mean it's not worth talking about. This is a hierarchical relationship in many ways. Um, and that seemed to be something that needed to be talked about in not only Jewish thought, but in this case about in feminist thought, because so much of what I had read in feminist ethics, for instance, seemed to be focused on relations between adults, um, erotic relationships or other kinds of relationships that were non-hierarchical or ideally non-hierarchical. And um, that's great. But what happens when we have relationships that are structurally 
hierarchical? Um, how do we think about those as a site for ethics? Um, and teaching, again, is, is one of those categories that just is so important for rabbinic thought. It's, um, it's really defining of what it means to be a parent is to teach, but it, they had the rabbis had a very narrow understanding of what gets taught, who teaches it. And so part of what I wanted to do with that chapter is open it up and think about the kind of um, non-textual, non-scholastic, um, embodied practice that we, you know, do every day when we're caring for small children as a kind of teaching and as Torah, which is, of course, the ultimate thing in Jewish thought that that is to be taught. Hmm. Yeah, I think this could be a really productive example for others to follow uh, by putting this kind of relational thinking uh, in uh, dialogue with uh, a larger intellectual history. Uh, so I hope others will, will take note. In the second part of the book, you extend from this mother-child dyad and you move outward uh, into other types of relationships. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, how you work through these uh, ideas of the other um, and how they uh, help you think through this idea of this relational subjectivity? Sure. Uh, well, the way I envision the the last the second half or the last three chapters is kind of in these concentric circles moving outward. Um, and, you know, Often that movement between, let's say, from the domicile out into the public sphere, right? That's a, that's a theme that we find in, let's say, modern writings about education, where, you know, the, the, the mother is kind of preparing the child to get out into the world. And then they, uh, who, you know, it's always the son, right, goes and takes up the, the work of you know, the, the Republic or, or what have you. Um, so, uh, you know, I was, I, <laughs> I really did not want to replicate that. Um, and for me, that means uh, kind of looking at the ways in which those broader networks are always already informing what happens in the work of child rearing, which of course doesn't only take place within a home, but is constantly, you know, happening out on the street and, uh, all, all sorts of other places, and that also connects us to other people through these very intimate relationships of care that are also globally significant. Um, if you think about it um, from the perspective of, you know, the ethics of care, a lot of people that I was really indebted to in reading for this book have written about, you know, what is it that happens within feminism in American feminism that has been unable to account for the fact that somebody has to raise children. And that means that if you go out and do the work in the public sphere that you are, you know, wanting to have access to as a woman, that typically what happens is another woman is brought in who leaves her own children or is simultaneously somehow caring for her own children. Um, to care for yours, right? That's that's a problem that we have not solved on a social political level, at least in this country. So I wanted to kind of make sure that when we think about who cares for children, that we aren't only thinking about the biological or adoptive parents, but we're thinking about these wider networks of people who are 
in different ways to different degrees involved in that intimate work, that work that kind of gets taken up as part of the project of, of becoming a human being um, in, a, in a society. So um, yeah, so there is that kind of concentric um, ring structure to the last half, which is that we start with the encounter with the other or the child as the other, um, a, a pretty important religious category. Um, for the Jewish thinkers that I look at and for some Christian thinkers in the early 20th century. And then uh, the next chapter addresses childcare that is provided not by somebody who is um, understood as a parent, but as, you know, let's say a teacher, a beloved teacher, a nanny, a babysitter, somebody who really becomes part of that daily work, but is not um, understood to be familial. Um, and then the last chapter is trying to read um, the commandment to love the neighbor as oneself in light of, um, you know, or not in light of, but I guess just what does it mean to read that as a parent of a small child? Who's the neighbor? Is my child the neighbor? Is my child somebody who is not a neighbor, but is going to grow into being my neighbor or someone else's neighbor? What about other people's children? Are they my neighbor? Well, clearly, yes. Right. So it, it seems like there was something there. So, so that's what that last chapter is. Well, obviously, there's so much more to the book that we just don't have time to get into. I'm wondering if you do have any final thoughts, though, that you could uh, help us think through, especially ones that might be uh, fruitful for people in the study of religion more broadly. Um, what kind of themes or questions um, has your book uh, taken up that might be uh, followed out by other scholars? Briefly, the question that I often am asked and am fine answering, you did not ask it, but, but now I feel compelled to address it, is about um, gender and, and maternal subjectivity. And I um, want to underscore that this is a book that uses the term maternal and mother and um, gendered categories such as that, um, in part because they reflect um, a a, an ongoing sociological reality, whether we like it or not, and certainly the historical literature. But I just want to be clear that this is a book that I hope will be read and be uh, read as meaningful and useful to parents of any gender or people who rear children, um, no matter what their uh, their familial name is within that system. Because, you know, I see that work as both grueling and wonderful and as really core to um, the experience of, of uh, or it, it, it's a core place that we might look to understand what it means to be human. Um, so that's, that I guess starts to answer the second question you just asked, which is, you know, how, how do I hope that others uh, who are not in my subfield, not in Jewish studies will read this? I, I mean, I hope that, um, it will help, uh, it, I guess, that it will intersect with people in a number of ways, whether they're in feminist studies, whether they're in modern uh, intellectual philosophical history, whether they're thinking about making an intervention in a tradition, um, or thinking about how they might use voice differently and um, kind of give people maybe the courage to be experimental. 
uh, it took a lot of courage, I think, for me. Or it, it took a lot of me. Uh, I would I wouldn't say that it took a lot of courage for me, but it it was a process of um, making peace with a really different genre of writing, and I really hope that it gives um, comfort to other people who might also want to play with the the voice that they use or what voice is an academic voice. It's a really interesting example of how we can do scholarship in new ways, and uh, I hope others will take you up on your, your model that you've provided here. So congratulations again on uh, winning the book award, and thanks for taking the time to talk about it. Thanks. Thanks for talking to me about it.